Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hi, everyone. We thank you so much for listening to this episode of the WCAPS podcast series, which continues the discussion of redefining national security. My name is Laura Coupe, and I am part of the Youth Ambassador team with WCAPS. And our goal as Youth Ambassadors is to provide a platform for young women of color to dialogue through blogs, podcasts, and programming, develop discussions, and share relevant information in the field. So here I am with our guest, Bumi Akinosotu, the Chief of Staff for Young Professionals in Foreign Policy and creator of the What in the World podcast. So WCAPS engaged in a meaningful, important discussion with a number of experts on the topic of redefining national security on May 11th in collaboration with the Brookings Institution. And at the core of this discussion was that from issues ranging from climate change to public health to migration, global trends formally considered separate from national security are increasingly understood to shape the American security landscape. Some have called for a need to expand the traditional definition of national security and others have seen that there are some dangers in in widening that framework. So the discourse was very insightful and hopefully others will have a chance to watch it on the Brookings Institution website. But today we are continuing this discussion with and with who also have in the audience. So thank you so much, Bumi, for, um, you know, for, for taking part in our podcast. And before we dive into the substantive, substantive issues, Bumi, can you briefly talk about your background and where you're from? Because we just want to make sure that our listeners get a sense of, you know, who our, who our guests are. Absolutely. Uh, so I consider myself to be a globally curious person. I uh, was born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, that's where I grew up. My family is still there. Um, but my neighborhood was pretty diverse. I grew up around people who were first-generation Americans, um, who were immigrants from Poland to Cuba to Dominican Republic to Cambodia to Laos. Um, you know, you could go down my street and you know, smell all different kinds of food. And, you know, there were different customs uh, that were that were very much like in my face growing up as a kid. And of course, in my household, we were Nigerian. So both of my parents migrated to the United States uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. I was born here in the States. Um, but I grew up with phone calls in the middle of the night from Nigeria, you know, relatives checking in on my family. I was sent to the bodega to go buy phone cards <laughs> back in the day when people used phone cards. I think people, Nigerians still use uh, phone cards, but like I would be sent over to the store to go buy $2 phone cards for my mom and my dad to use so that they could call Nigeria uh, whenever there were parties with family or friends, you know, foreign policy issues or the UN or the IMF, all of these sort of like, you know, globally based conversations always came up in my household and my dad and my uncles would always like argue about Nigerian presidents and, and all of that. So it was very much like foreign policy has always been or global, uh, having a global awareness has always been a part of my, my life growing up. And um, I'm thankful. I'm definitely thankful for that. Um, I would say that being a child of immigrants, 
um, it definitely opens you up and sensitizes you to the world outside of America in a way that being a multi-generational American doesn't. I mean, with the exception, of course, if you're in the military, uh, you come from a military background, or maybe you come from a family that has like, you know, an, a diplomatic uh, professional, someone who's in the foreign service. So, you know, just having that connection to another country outside of America, it, it sort of just sensitizes you again to to the world beyond America. And, and that's sort of, I think, what continues to shape my interest and understanding of foreign policy today. Great. And so you talked a lot about your upbringing, and that clearly led to your interest in national security. But what actually led you to get into the space? What made you say, hey, I want to, like, I'm very curious about the world, but I actually want to be a part of this, you know, I mean, I guess this establishment. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, so I took a class in um, undergrad, two classes. The first was uh, minority literature, and that was my first exposure to um, Black writers, Black American, African American writers. And in a lot of those readings, you know, you learn about the authors, um, people like Langston Hughes, um, folks uh, like Octavia Butler, uh, we, we, you know, we didn't read about her because she's a singer, but Nina Simone was ever present, like, in our conversations. Um, uh, I'm drawing a, a blank here. Uh, but just Black authors in general um, always were, like, in that class, just present in my mind, and we were always reading them. And what I found was that a lot of them traveled abroad <laughs> and and uh, lived in France and lived in London and lived in, in Germany. And I was just always intrigued um, by that experience of African-Americans going abroad, um, particularly at a time when, you know, uh, America was going through a lot of civil rights issues and there was a lot of racial tension here in this country. And so when I, would, when I took that class, when I read different authors and I would read about their lives and how they traveled the world, I thought, I mean, like, how cool is that? Um, and I took another class, um, the, the International Sociology, and I learned about uh, femin uh, FGM, the female genital mutilation in Kenya, and I wrote a paper about it. And I was just struck, like, I'm always asking why, like, why, why, why is this necessary? And, and what I learned in that class was just sort of how different cultures view women's bodies, um, view sexuality differently. And as someone who was, you know, born in a Western country, you know, my understanding of sex and sexuality and my body is completely different than somebody else in another country. And that paper really opened my eyes up to how other cultures um, deal with or address uh, issues like sexuality and sex and discrimination and education and, and so on and so forth. And so that was like my first inkling that I knew like, well, I want to actually do something in this space. And, and I was unfortunately not able to travel abroad uh, uh, and study abroad while I was in college. I, I had applied, but uh, you know, just due to funding, I couldn't give up my volleyball scholarship. I was a lifelong athlete. Um, I was on a partial scholarship for college. And um, what my coaches, who I love, you know, they're amazing. They were like, look, if you go abroad for a semester, you risk losing your partial scholarship. And I, my, my mom just didn't have the money to, to, you know, manage me through college. So I ended up having to 
uh, you know, stay, stay stateside. But I always wanted to go abroad and, and I tried different ways to stay in touch with the foreign policy space in one way or, or another. And then finally, like, I just, like, in my late 20s, after trying, <laughs> um, I just said, you know what, I'm going to grad school and I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go. I went to Columbia. Um, I started off with a master's in international affairs and taking, you know, the basics of international relations and on and on. And, and I said, this is what I'm going to do. I wanted to work at the UN. And then I realized that maybe the UN isn't a good fit for me. <laughs> uh, but I, I said, you know what, grad school is going to be the route that I take uh, to really finally get into this foreign policy space. And then um, from there, I ended up at the EPA working, fortunately, under the Obama administration. And I worked on uh, at the EPA, at the Environmental Protection Agency. And through that opportunity, I was able to get my entree into global policy, foreign policy, uh, through the environmental lens, which is not what I had had intended. I thought I would maybe do international development work, humanitarian work, immigration, um, migration, refugee types of work. Um, but the environment actually ended up being the turning point in my career that brought me to the foreign policy national national security space. Great. And then currently, you, as I mentioned earlier, you are the chief of staff at at Young Professionals for Foreign Policy, and you are the creator of your own podcast called What in the World. So could you speak more about your role at YPFP, what some of you your goals are as the new chief of staff, and then could you talk a little bit more about your podcast? For sure. Well, uh, Young Professionals in Foreign Policy is a global community of 20,000 young professionals located in 80 countries around the world. And we seek to build, engage, um, and amplify the voices of young professional, foreign policy professionals. And foreign policy is used loosely, so it's not just the hard politics, but it could be diplomacy, defense, it could be uh, international development. But we offer various professional development opportunities to build your skill sets as a global leader. We host events with VIP speakers, uh, you know, Bonnie Jenkins will be one of those uh, folks coming up in the future. Uh, so we really try to provide programming that enlightens and exposes uh, and sharpens our members' understanding of various foreign policy issues. We have our own online journal, Charged Affairs, where just about anybody around the world can submit an article uh, about a foreign policy related topic. Uh, we know that, that part of being a foreign policy professional is building a brand and showing the world what you know. And writing is, is a, an important tool or an important path towards doing that. And we also have an extensive fellowship program um, that does the same thing that prepares young professionals uh, for the world of writing and publication, and we try to get them, or we do end up getting them published. And my role as chief of staff, it just depends on the day, really, but I manage everything from the volunteer community uh, here in Washington, D.C., and around the world who work very, very, very hard uh, for free to keep this organization running and find speakers and find space, uh, help us with fundraising. Um, and related to that, I also do some fundraising for the organization. Um, I identify partnership opportunities that will help boost and advance the mission of the of the organization. And then there's the sort of back end, which is just as important, the sort of 
core business functions of any nonprofit related to finance, um, managing our technology and our website, uh, ensuring that our databases are are functioning and, and working. And so I do all of that alongside our president, Alexia Diarco, uh, uh, who's my partner in crime and is, is fantastic. And so together, she and I head up uh, this, this community of, of about 150 or so um, volunteers worldwide and about 20,000, like a network of 20,000 people. So I'm very, very busy, um, needless to say. Great. And then what about what in the world? Tell us a little bit more yes. about that. So what in the world is a radio show and podcast separate and apart from my work with YPFP. Um, it's a radio show and podcast that attempts to make foreign policy understandable and relevant to regular ordinary Americans. And I do so by amplifying the expertise of women and people of color. And I do that because oftentimes when you look at the media coverage of foreign policy issues, the experts are usually white men. And there's the phrase, you know, white male Yale. And this is this has been, you know, since forever it's been it's been this way, where in mainstream media and certainly in the field of foreign policy, it's 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 an elitist, it's a closed off community, uh, restricted to men who are white and from prestigious uh, backgrounds, you know, with Ivy League degrees and, you know, extensive military experience. And, and, and so I thought I'd create this show, one, as a way to help Americans have the experience I had growing up, which is just like exposure to what's happening outside of the world and what, what that means to them here uh, in America. And then, then, but two, I wanted to give amazing people that I know uh, some of them are strangers, now friends, but give them a platform to show off a little bit. And I know, Lori, you've been on my show, um, Ambassador Body Jenkins has been on my show, and, and others uh, who I just respect just totally and completely have been on the show trying to unpack the world of foreign policy, which can often be very hard to decipher if you're not in this world on a regular basis. And so I record the show out of Arlington Independent Media, which is in Arlington, Virginia, and it can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, um, Google Cast, et cetera, uh, Chromecast, et cetera, et cetera. And it's something that I started in response to uh, the travel ban and a lot of the uh, president's rhetoric around foreign policy and the scare tactics that were used, the misinformation that was used to, uh, you know, really uh, push Americans away from the world. And, you know, I was sitting, I was listening to uh, NPR when I came up the name, with the name of the, with the name of the show. Uh, I was, I was listening to NPR and uh, they were interviewing someone who was a Trump voter about, um, about Mexico and about immigrants. And what the person was saying was just like entirely wrong. And I was so upset and I was like, what in the world is wrong with people? Like what in the world is going on with our country? And like, where did we miss the mark? And so that's how I came, <laughs> I came up with the name of the show was, was listening to NPR. Got it. I mean, it was definitely fun to be uh, on, on the show as well. So everybody check out Boomi's uh, podcast and radio show. And yes. then speaking about an episode that you did, 
for your for the show was one on the White House National Security Strategy, which yes. was released on December 18, 2017. Yes. And basically, for those who are not aware about what the strategy is, it outlines the Trump administration's national security strategy and incorporates what many have said is President Trump's America First policy orientation. And the strategy has four pillars. So number one, protect the homeland to protect American prosperity. Three, preserve peace through strength. And four, advance U.S. influence. And just having highlighted those pillars, why did, I mean, you already mentioned again why you created the show, but why did you feel that it was important to have an episode specifically dedicated on the national security strategy for your listeners? Because it's, it's a blueprint for what this administration plans to do uh, in the world. And a lot of what they plan to do requires American energy and American tax dollars and, and probably American blood, if we want to be frank. Uh, and so to have this document out there and not have Americans know what's in it, I think is a travesty. Uh, it outlines, I mean, politics aside, it outlines how our government is, is going to, or how our government feels about the world and what it intends to do about how it feels <laughs> about the world. And, and so I think that it, as, as Americans, one, as taxpaying people, uh, we ought to know what this administration and what this government intends to do with our tax dollars. And it, while it doesn't spell out money, um, it's not a document that's intended to be a budget, um, it does signal to the American people what the priorities are and and how we intend to go about addressing those priorities and and then there were also pieces in there um you know for for you know regardless of what people think about the president and 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 you know how he does things there are actually pieces in there that if you're a business-minded person um might be a business opportunity for you uh, because they talk about jobs they talk about technology and innovation and so i think it's a it's just a great piece of um work in terms of uh just cluing people into what opportunities might lie out there if you're business-minded or if you're into sort of the the contracting world and you're trying to figure out like you know where there might be opportunities for you to to grow a business and and so that's why i did it and i found it fascinating just like reading through it and (laughs) some of the language uh, that was used in it i you know I, I, I'll be honest, before this, um, I hadn't read the other national security strategies. Uh, I know shame on me, but, but so I was just fascinated. And then I started going back and reading Obama's and then I read the, uh, Obama's first one and I read Clinton's and I read Bush's and I was just reading and I was like, oh, like this is actually really just a great historical document in and of itself as well. So that's the reason why I did, did the show. Right. And in a lot of ways, it also defines how the U.S. views its national security in terms of, you know, the topics and issues that were included in the document. And so you had mentioned that you had looked at the the national security strategies under Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. And so could you provide an overview about how this um, national security strategy is different from um, its predecessors and then in some ways how it's the same? The same, yeah. Okay, so so I think the first thing to do um, is is to frame this national security strategy 
in terms of like basic international relations, like theory and just like on my first, very first episode of What in the World, I had um, Ambassador uh, Brigitte come and talk about the basics of international relations theory. And for anybody who's studied this, these are not foreign terms, but essentially international relations theory tries to help us understand why actors or countries or leaders do what they do. And it, it boils down to three basic theories. One is, you know, do you see the world as a competitive place, as a, a place where everyone's out to get you, it's survival of the fittest, right? And and it's about you maintaining your own sovereignty, right? That That view is called realism. And then there's liberalism, which is like, you sort of see the world as a place of rules and institutions and everybody works together. Um, things are more collaborative. Uh, we all try to sort of adhere to international standards because we realize that like what I do could impact what you do. If, if I'm the United States, Laura, uh, Laura and you're, you know, Mexico, you know, we sort of understand that, you know, if we both violate you know, international standards regarding the environment that has consequences for the both of us, right? And so the liberal and the, the realist views are often competing against one another. And so with that framing, when you look at the differences between this document and Obama's, this is like the epitome of a realist perspective. The Trump administration's national security strategy if you're looking for the ex perfect example of realism, just read through these, you know, however many pages <laughs> it is. And then you look at Obama's, clearly Obama's was much more of a liberal uh, uh, tone to the document. It, it talks about we're in this together. The language, the words that are used are a lot less uh, aggressive. <laughs> uh, you know, if you look at Trump's document, it's more like, it uses heavy words like dominance. Uh, it uses words like sovereignty. Um, it uses threat, threats and competition and uh, advantage. You know, it's very like, you know, grr. It's, it's, it's just an aggressive <laughs> document. Human versus Obama's, which is which, which signals to the world like America's might in a way that doesn't make you feel like you know America's going to come and bomb you tomorrow, right? Uh, you read Trump's document or the the Trump administration's document, and you you you're like, oh my goodness, like we're we're just ready to fight. We're just like we're just ready to to knock if you buck, which is like how I like that was the song that was playing in my mind as I was reading this was knock if you buck like come at me if you want to, and we'll show you, you know, what we're made of, which is completely different than what you saw in the Obama's uh, last or the last two uh, national security uh, strategies that he put out. So those are, that. that's in terms of tone and, and uh, theoretical approach, that, that is, it just jumps out that, that clearly, uh, you know, Trump is much more of a realist and Obama is definitely, Obama's document is much more on the liberal perspective. Right. And then on top of that, I think another uh, noticeable topic was that the Trump uh, national Trump administration's national security strategy had a had a pretty big emphasis on the military. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, compared to to um, other ones. Of course, the military is a huge part of our national security. And so I think 
as we also discussed at the WCAPS and Brookings event back in, in May, which seems like much longer ago, but it was really that long ago, was talking about, you know, how national security usually is tied to things like the military or defense. And yeah. Yeah. so I guess you were also in the audience. So, so I guess there were, so I as so now I'm asking you some questions, like, what'd you think about the discussion that happened there? And yeah. then, you know, part of the discussion too was about, you know, should national security as usually highlighted in our national security strategy be certain specific topics that are just very definitive, like the military or homeland right. security right. Right. and right. not necessarily health or migration or women's issues. Right. So I was just wondering, yeah. you know, if you had, if you had been in the White House to draft a national security strategy, what topics do you think would you have included or not included? Or, um, you know, if, if granted, you know, this administration will do as, as it pleases and, and identify the priorities that it wants. But if you, you know, if you're president in 2020, you know, what were some, what are some topics that you think the national security strategy should include? in the future, particularly as they impact issues of peace and security. Yeah, Whew, that's a, there's a lot going on. We've got a lot, I know, a lot. To, I know there's a lot going on, but you know, I just, can't remember. What, <laughs> but as we're but, thinking about yeah, redefining but, national security, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I attended the event, like you mentioned, I thought it was fantastic, and I thought Bonnie put together a great panel of different perspectives, and, and two things jumped out at me that I just, I loved, and, and one is uh, the idea, so the issues like gun violence, for example. That's a, a, a domestic issue, right? Uh, but but if, you, if you think about it, it's also a national security issue because, you know, we're talking about you know, killing, if people are, are um, being killed, uh, we are losing a valuable asset, which is human capital. And you need human capital to fight wars. You need human capital to build machinery. You need human capital to run the stock market. You need human capital to educate the future. You need those people. So when people are just dying recklessly, you're killing off you know, the base, um, the, the foundation of what allows you to be a country. That's, that's one. And so I think that absolutely, uh, while we think about national security as things like military defense and, uh, you know, terrorist threats, there are our own threats here at home that could prevent us from dealing with those other external threats. And I just want to like raise an interesting point about the president's national security strategy. So I think I, I've gotten to the point where I, while I, I, the America first language, it sounds crazy. It sounds selfish. Right. And, and I cringe, I used to cringe about it when I would hear the president talk about it. But if you look at the very first uh, two paragraphs and then the last sentence of the introduction of the national security strategy, the, the, the sentence reads, it says, um, an America that is safe, prosperous, and free at home is an America with the strength, confidence, and will to lead abroad. It is an America that can preserve peace, uphold liberty, and create enduring advantages for the American people. Putting America first is the duty of our government and the foundation for U.S. leadership in the world. 
this national security strategy puts America first. That is, that is to me, uh, a way of looking at national security as in fact a domestic issue. It, it, it's, it's not something again that when I first heard, you know, America first that I thought about, you know, but having read through that, the president in a way is redefining national security as a domestic issue. And even throughout the rest of the document, while he talks, while it talks about a competitive world and it talks about North Korea and Russia, yeah, 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 it talks about all those things. At the very end, he talks about America's innovation and thinking about things like jobs <laughs> uh, and, and bringing more Americans to trade uh, uh, opportunities in trades that will ensure America's leadership in the future. And that has to do with like education. That has to do with, you know, access to great schools uh, and, and higher education. Those are domestic issues. So I think, you know, as we redefine uh, uh, national security, I think it's okay for us to, to absorb this idea of America first as also a domestic, you know, a domestic position. Uh, and, and it's okay for us to, to see that things like education, like, uh, uh, you know, access to great jobs is also a national security strategy. Now, the president doesn't say that here. <laughs> it's not framed that way. Um, but I, 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 do, I do now feel like, and, sit, and certainly sitting in that conversation with Brookings, I do feel like the, the administration at least understands that that by providing access to jobs and a good education, we are ensuring America's leadership in the future. Um, now, things like gun violence wasn't raised. Um, things like gender issues weren't raised or access to health care were not raised. Um, but I, I do believe that, you know, in a, in a less, uh, you know, clear way, um, the administration understands that a lot of these domestic issues are enablers for our global leadership um, outside of America. So um, that's what I have to say about redefining, <laughs> uh, redefining national security uh, and national security strategy. If I had the pen on this, um, well, actually, let me, uh, another thing I want to sort of mention uh, this goes back to, you know, the differences between Obama's uh, national security strategy and this one. So because I work at the EPA, I'm particularly interested in the environmental aspects of this. Uh, in, a Trump in Trump's document, uh, just again, going back to wording, uh, climate change is uh, described as uh, energy dominance energy dominance. Like what? <laughs> we want to dominate with energy? Uh, Obama is clearly articulated as climate change and climate security, right? Calling into view that we see climate change as a real thing and as a threat to our national security, right? Uh, the Trump administration defines this as a competitive thing. America needs to build the best technology out there to dominate energy, like, you know, whatever. But so, so I think uh, what's interesting is that, you know, in terms of redefining 
national security, the role of climate has become uh, prominent, more prominent, um, but just defined differently by both administrations. Right. So okay. I guess some people would, you know, if this was music, people would call it like creative differences, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, each, each administration chooses, you know, what what it its priorities are, and then clearly, as, you, as you've outlined, there there are some differences. Um, yes. And uh, and we we respect the views of you know of the administration that each have um, outlined them, but they're just different from each other depending on who the president is. And then I guess I just want to then shift a little bit away from talking about redefining national security, maybe on the hard topics in terms of, you know, the military or public health or climate change, and then talk more about why, why do you think it's important to also have diverse voices um, be part of developing these strategies, hopefully in the future, um, and then just also come out why you think it's important to have more diverse voices in the national security community at large because some people have outlined at you know at the at the panel back in may that because you probably have the same types of people in the room that's why these topics are the ones that are addressed addressed in the national security strategy so for example maybe there were folks who had more of a public health background or a migration background mm -hmm. in developing um national security strategy the document would look a little bit different or also that diversity could also include different constituencies that traditionally yeah. have not been in those spaces before so um, why do you think it's important to have that diversity yeah you you so people of color and women in particular right they we offer an interesting perspective because while if you're an American, right, while we're benefiting from America's position in the world, many of us still deal with the residue of systemic racism, bias, discrimination, sexism, all of those things. And so because many of us uh, have been in positions either in our personal lives or in our professional lives where we feel like we've been mistreated um, or, you know, been treated poorly or you know, God forbid, we many of us, I'm sure, have been in positions where we feel threatened. Uh, you know, because we know what that's like, I think we bring a, a greater sensitivity towards others around the world who are dealing with similar types of situations right now. Again, we're Americans, and so we, we do come with our privilege. Uh, but... I think about, for example, Asha Castleberry, who was on my show, uh, who was a military vet, and she talked about her time in Iraq. And her having the name Asha, which is a Muslim name, uh, that, that name alone and her being a Black woman gave her greater access to the Muslim community and to the constituent groups that the military was interacting with. There was just a deeper level of trust with her because she was a woman of color, because she had the name Asha, right? And I think that we need more of those types of connections. I think the beauty, the reason why I love America and the beauty of this country is that we are able to manage relative peace amongst the races. And some people may disagree, but for the most part, like as a black woman, I walk down the street and something happens. Things, like this police I can call, there's a, a justice system that I can count on that sort of works, right? So in other countries, they don't have that. And so we experience like relative like 
fairness uh, and, in a ways that others others don't uh, around around the world. Um, but that uh, that sort of understanding uh, allows us to relate with others um, who are, you know, outside of America. And then, and frankly, on top of that. Uh, Foreign policy impacts black and brown folks. Let's just be real, right? Like, so when we look at the refugee crisis, when we look at terrorism, when we look at, uh, you know, humanitarian issues or whatever, we're looking at black and brown people. We're looking at Asians, we're looking at Africans, we're looking at Latin Americans. And who better to interact with people, with those folks, than the people who have a connection to those places, right? And I, you know, I think that it would be a travesty for, it's a travesty for America to not utilize the asset, the, the diversity of this country um, to, to advance peace and security uh, around the world. Like, you know, as, as was mentioned on the panel, you know, we, we end up in these, so the world system that was created post-World War II was created by white men. Uh, you know, and in a post-colonial context where you had countries like Nigeria, like Ghana, where you had countries in Latin America. In a post-colonial context, you had all these countries fighting America or trying to fight for their place on the world, on the world stage. And America is a part of that system and white men created this system <laughs> and, and it didn't necessarily always turn out great. Uh, so why not include other perspectives and voices uh, and try something different uh, to make this world just a little bit easier to, to, to live in. And uh, again, I'm fortunate to know many folks like you, Laura, like Bonnie, um, who have been around the world and offer a great perspective and, and they're smart and they're just as talented as any other person and they deserve a seat at the table and an opportunity to help us shift the trajectory of the world and the, the way things are going. So those are the reasons why people of color are important. And for me personally, I think, uh, you know, I, I traveled abroad to East Timor uh, not too long ago. And uh, East Timor, the people there, you know, some of them were darker than me, some of them were lighter than me. Um, but they're like, they had never seen, um, a lot of people had never seen a, a Black woman, not only a Black woman, but a Black woman who's American and had Nigerian ancestry. A lot of them thought I was Brazilian or that I was Cuban, um, but an American, you know, <laughs> who was also Nigerian and my name was like very different. And so that gave me leverage and a leg up over my white counterparts. <laughs> uh, and I was just able to get a lot things, a lot more things done because people, um, trusted me and knew that I would sort of understand the intricacies of, you know, working in their environment. Um, even though I was an American, they, as a woman of color, they just were like, she gets it. And, and I, sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, but uh, that, uh, that opportunity is something that I think a lot more people of color should have. Great. And then just to kind of quickly follow up on that, how do you think we can, especially in America specifically, how do you think we could get constituencies of color to get more engaged in national security issues? I feel like what in the world is a great first step, yeah. but could you 
provide some quick thoughts on that just yeah. to build up on quick what thoughts. you've spoken about? Yeah, so I think it starts with home and, and with our children. So I think parents should definitely not be afraid to open up their kids to other cultures. And, and that also in part starts with the adults themselves being comfortable being around other people who are not like them and that's just not just that's not just like racially and ethnicity but that's in terms of religion that's in terms of nationality um you know etc cetera, etc cetera. because when you create open children they become open adults and more um just sensitive to other people i think that we need america generally needs to do better about um a more globalized education. Uh, I meet lots of folks who come to America from all over the world and they speak two, three, four, or five languages. They know more about American history than Americans know about American history. Um, you know, they've traveled the world. Uh, and we in America have this thing where we think that, you know, we don't need to know about anybody else because we're the leaders. That's completely false. We need our social studies programs to be more rigorous. We need to ensure that children speak other languages. We need to do better about um, exposing our kids to, and uh, you know, even adult children or adults. Period to opportunities outside of America. And I think finally, we need to fund programs that enable more Americans to travel. While I love the State Department's program, uh, exchange programs. I really wish that like the Department of Education, the Department of Labor, um, I really wish that we had more programs uh, that could send Americans abroad, even if it's just for like 30 days. If you don't belong to a church, if you didn't do Peace Corps, if you, um, if you didn't study abroad in college, like there's just no other opportunity to go and a lot of people don't have a lot of money to just like pick up and go. So I think we need more philanthropic dollars targeting, frankly, you know, no shameless plug here, but we need more funds targeting places like WCAPS and, and YPFP uh, to enable us to give opportunities for young professionals like you and me, Laura, to experience the world differently. And I, I think that that's, that's, I think what we could be doing to get more people of color. And I want to give a shout out to like places like Howard University, right, and the Rangel program that that specifically targets people of color to work in the foreign service. That's an amazing program. I wish there were more programs and more funding um, to to have that opportunity grow um, and bring in more people. So those are the things that I think we should be doing. Okay, great. And then my last question is, you know, I'm part of the Youth Ambassador Program for WCAP. So do you have any career advice for young people, particularly women, young women of color, that want to get into this peace and security or national security space? You know, if you could provide, uh, you know, top line tips, what would they be? My top line tips are travel early while you're young. My my regret was that I didn't travel, uh, that I didn't study abroad in college. And and granted, our financial circumstances when I was that young didn't permit it, but I I certainly could have traveled afterwards. Um, but I would say travel, travel, whatever you need to do, sell lemonade, uh, Uber, drive Uber, whatever you need to do to collect the coins, go abroad and learn a language. One, two, uh, definitely join organizations like WCAPS, 
like YPFP. There are so many other young professional organizations. And I know that um, uh, there's a, a large number of folks who live like in middle America and don't necessarily have the access to um, like a Brookings or YPFP or WCAPS or whatever. I would say if you're in that situation where you're in middle of America, definitely look at your colleges and universities for the student groups or, you know, if you work for a company, look to see if you can get a job that allows you to travel abroad. So it'd be great if somebody could pay for you to travel abroad and, and do a stint abroad. Um, there, are, there are things like Fulbright programs that have uh, opportunities for working professionals. Uh, teaching abroad is another opportunity. So I think joining professional organizations and really being intentional about seeking those organizations and those opportunities are, are critical. And there are lots of resources like YPFP, WCAPS, for example, that, that could help. Um, and, then, and then finally, what I would say, you know, podcast, write. Like, uh, one of my fears was, you know, because I wasn't an ambassador or because I, you know, didn't have super, um, I didn't have an extensive history uh, with foreign policy. I thought that I wasn't qualified to have the foreign policy conversation. I'm a career switcher. I came from the nonprofit sector, fundraising, social service, domestic stuff to foreign policy. And I thought, I'm not qualified to be in this world. You are absolutely qualified. And get out there, write, get on podcasts or start your own podcasts. Um, there's LinkedIn and you, know, you can write about anything you want on LinkedIn and share it with your friends and your family for people to see. But get basically the point is uh, build your brand become visible so that people can see, you know, what you think and what you feel about, about foreign policy issues. Thank you so much, Bumi, for that very important piece of advice. It's definitely something that I've learned as well. So it's always great to hear others confirm these very important lessons. And thank you also for taking the time out of your schedule to talk about this very, I would say, big topic, redefining national security, not big, but it's like, it's challenging at the same yeah. time because yeah. there's no, you know, there's no clear answer. And depending on, you know, the way you view the world and life experiences you have, you might think some topics are more important than others. And right. I think the Brookings discussion back in May indicated that as well. So thank you so much for at least continuing this discussion with me. And I'm sure Caps will have many more uh, you know, events on this topic. No problem. And can I just say uh, one thing, and uh, hopefully the editor can bring this section <laughs> back to the Brookings conversation. I, I forgot to mention what I, what I enjoyed about the other, the second piece that I enjoyed about that conversation is uh, related to my podcast, which is it talked about how in order to redefine national security, you have to make it understandable and digestible for people. And we learned that in the last election, right, that, you know, people are easily swayed and just are clueless about the, the ramifications of foreign policy and the impacts it has on their daily life. And so I think that part of redefining national security is making sure that it's accessible to Americans, it's relevant to Americans, and it's spoken in a way that people understand like what's being said and and 
you know, I try to do that with my show. I know that this conversation was meant to do that as well with, with Brookings. And so I would, I would just like to say that, you know, redefining national security also means redefining how we talk about national security and who we talk to, who we talk to period and, and how, you know, easy or difficult it is for them to access that conversation. So that's all I wanted to say, my second point about the redefining national security. Okay, thank you so much, Bumi. And then um, to all the listeners out there, look out for the remaining episodes for this coming year and, and how, just how WCAPS tries to engage new and different voices when it comes to individuals that work in the issues of peace and security. Bye everyone. Thank you so much, Laura. Take care. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.